CD 7. When one accidentally puts one boot in a swamp, it is quite unpleasant, but not as unpleasant as pushing down with the other boot and hearing that, too, disappear with a soft sucking noise. Harkardly pressed on. You see, wizardry is more... Are we not more powerful than the gods, then? said Coyne. Some of the wizards at the back of the crowd began to shuffle their feet. Well, yes and no, said Harkardly, up to his knees in it now. The truth was that wizards tended to be somewhat nervous about the gods. The beings who dwelt on Cori Celesti had never made their feelings plain on the subject of ceremonial magic, which, after all, had a certain godness about it, and wizards tended to avoid the whole subject. The trouble with gods was that if they didn't like something, they didn't just drop hints. So common sense suggested that it was unwise to put the gods in a position where they had to decide. There seems to be some uncertainty, said Coyne. If I may counsel, Arcadley began. Coyne waved a hand. The walls vanished. The wizards stood at the top of the Tower of Sorcery, and as one man their eyes turned to the distant pinnacle of Cori Celesti, home of the gods. When you've beaten everyone else, there's only the gods left to fight, said Coyne. Have any of you seen the gods? There was a chorus of hesitant denials. I will show them to you. You got room for another one in there, old son, said War. Pestilence swayed unsteadily. I'm sure we should be getting along, he muttered without much conviction. Oh, go on. Just a half, then, and then we really must be going. War slapped him on the back and glared at famine. And we'd better have another fifteen bags of peanuts, he added. Ook, the librarian concluded. Oh, said Rincewind, it's the staff that's the problem, then. Ook, hasn't anyone tried to take it away from him? Ook, what happened to them, then? Ook. Rincewind groaned. The librarian had put his candle out because the presence of the naked flame was unsettling the books. But now that Rincewind had grown accustomed to the dark, he realised it wasn't dark at all. The soft octarine glow from the books filled the inside of the tower with something that, while it wasn't exactly light, was a blackness you could see by. Now and again the ruffle of stiff pages floated down from the gloom. So basically there's no way our magic could defeat him, isn't that right? The librarian ooked disconsolate agreement and continued to spin around gently on his bottom. Pretty pointless, then. It may have struck you that I am not exactly gifted in the magical department. I mean, any duel is going to go along the lines of Hello, I'm Rincewind, closely followed by Bazam. Ook. Basically, what you're saying is that I'm on my own. Ook. Thanks. By their own faint glow, Rincewind regarded the books that had stacked themselves around the inner walls of the ancient tower. He sighed and marched briskly to the door, but slowed down noticeably as he reached it. I'll um, be off then, he said. Ook. To face who knows what dreadful perils, Rincewind added. To lay down my life in the service of mankind? All right. Bipeds. Oof. And quadrupeds, all right. He glanced at the patrician's jam jar, a beaten man. And lizards, he added. Can I go now? A gale was howling down out of a clear sky as Rincewind toiled towards the Tower of Sorcery. Its high white doors were shut so tightly that it was barely possible to see their outline in the milky surface of the stone. He hammered on it for a bit, but nothing much happened. The doors seemed to absorb the sound. Fine thing, he muttered to himself, and remembered the carpet. It was lying where he had left it, which was another sign that Ankh had changed. In the thieving days before the sorcerer, nothing stayed for long where you left it. Nothing printable, anyway. He rolled it out on the cobbles, so that the golden dragons writhed against the blue ground. Unless, of course, the blue dragons were flying against a golden sky. He sat down. He stood up. He sat down again and hitched up his robe and, with some effort, unrolled one of his socks. Then he replaced his boot and wandered around a bit until he found, among the rubble, a half-brick. He inserted the half-brick into the sock and gave the sock a few thoughtful swings. Rincewind had grown up in Moorpork. What a Moorpork citizen likes to have on his side in a fight was odds of about twenty to one. 
but failing that, a sock full of half-brick and a dark alley to lurk in was generally considered a better bet than any two magic swords you cared to name. He sat down again. Up, he commanded. The carpet did not respond. Rincewind peered at the pattern, then lifted a corner of the carpet and tried to make out if the underside was any better. All right, he conceded. Down, very, very carefully, down. Sheep, slurred War. It was sheep. His helmeted head hit the bar with a clang. He raised it again. Sheep. No, 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 said Famine, raising a thin finger unsteadily. Some other dumbest, dumbest, tame animal, like pig, heifer, kitten, like that, not sheep. Bees, said Pestilence, and slid gently out of his seat. Okay, said War, ignoring him. Right, once again then, from the top. He wrapped the side of his glass for the note. We are poor little unidentified domesticated animals that have lost our way, he quavered. Ba, 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 muttered Pestilence from the floor. War shook his head. It isn't the same, you know, he said. Not without him. He used to come in beautifully on the base. Ba, 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 Pestilence repeated. Oh, shut up said War, and reached uncertainly for a bottle. The gale buffeted the top of the tower, a hot, unpleasant wind that whispered with strange voices and rubbed the skin like fine sandpaper. In the centre of it, Coin stood with the staff over his head. As dust filled the air, the wizards saw the lines of magic force pouring from it. They curved up to form a vast bubble that expanded until it must have been larger than the city, and shapes appeared in it. They were shifting and indistinct, wavering horribly like visions in a distorting mirror, no more substantial than smoke rings or pictures in the clouds, but they were dreadfully familiar. There, for a moment, was the fanged snout of Offler. There, clear for an instant in the writhing storm, was blind Eo, chief of the gods, with his orbiting eyes. Coin muttered soundlessly and the bubble began to contract. It bulged and jerked obscenely as the things inside it fought to get out, but they could not stop the contraction. Now it was bigger than the university grounds. Now it was taller than the tower. Now it was twice the height of a man and smoke grey. Now it was an iridescent pearl, the size of, well, the size of a large pearl. The gale had gone, replaced by a heavy, silent calm. The very air groaned with the strain. Most of the wizards were flat on the floor, pressed there by the unleashed forces that thickened the air and deadened sound like a universe of feathers but every one of them could hear his own heart beating loud enough to smash the tower. Look at me, Coin commanded. They turned their eyes upwards. There was no way they could disobey. He held the glistening thing in one hand. The other held the staff, which had smoke pouring from its ends. The gods, he said, imprisoned in a thought, and perhaps they were never more than a dream. His voice became older, deeper. Wizards of Unseen University, it said. Have I not given you absolute dominion? Behind him, the carpet rose slowly over the side of the tower, with Rincewind trying hard to keep his balance. His eyes were wide with the sort of terror that comes naturally to anyone standing on a few threads and several hundred feet of empty air. He lurched off the hovering thing and then onto the tower, swinging the loaded sock around his head in wide, dangerous sweeps. Coin saw him reflected in the astonished stares of the assembled wizards. He turned carefully and watched the wizards stagger erratically towards him. "'Who are you?' he said. "'I have come,' said Rincewind thickly, "'to challenge the sorcerer. Um, which one is he?' He surveyed the prostrate wizardry, hefting the half-brick in one hand. Arcadley risked a glance upwards and made frantic eyebrow movements at Rincewind, who even at the best of times wasn't much good at interpreting non-verbal communication. This wasn't the best of times. With a sock, said Coyne. What good is a sock? The arm holding the staff rose. Coyne looked down at it in mild astonishment. No, stop, he said. I want to talk to this man. 
He stared at Rincewind, who was swaying back and forth under the influence of sleeplessness, horror, and the after-effects of an adrenaline overdose. Is it magical? he said curiously. Perhaps it is the sock of an arch-chancellor, a sock of force. Rincewind focused on it. I don't think so, he said. I think I bought it in a shop or something. Uh, I've got another one somewhere. But in the end it has something heavy? Er, uh, yes, said Rincewind. He added, it's a half-brick, but it has great power. Ah, uh, well, you can hold things up with it. If you had another one, you'd have a brick. Rincewind spoke slowly. He was assimilating the situation by a kind of awful osmosis and watching the staff turn ominously in the boy's hand. So, it is a brick of ordinariness within a sock, the whole becoming a weapon. Uh, yes. How does it work? Um, you swing it and then you hit something with it. Or sometimes the back of your hand. Sometimes. And then perhaps it destroys a whole city, said Coyne. Rincewind stared into Coyne's golden eyes and then at his sock. He'd pulled it on and off several times a year for years. It had darns he'd grown to know and love. Well, no. Some of them had whole families of darns on their own. There were a number of descriptions that could have applied to the sock, but Slayer of Cities wasn't among them. Not really, he said at last. It sort of kills people but leaves buildings standing. Rincewind's mind was operating at the speed of continental drift. Parts of it were telling him that he was confronting the sorcerer, but they were in direct conflict with other parts. Rincewind had heard quite a lot about the power of the sorcerer, the staff of the sorcerer, the wickedness of the sorcerer and so on. The only thing no one had mentioned was the age of the sorcerer. He glanced towards the staff. And what does that do? he said slowly. And the staff said, You must kill this man. The wizards, who had been cautiously struggling upright, flung themselves flat again. The voice of the hat had been bad enough, but the voice of the staff was metallic and precise. It didn't sound as though it was offering advice, but simply stating the way the future had to be. It sounded quite impossible to ignore. Coyne half-raised his arm and hesitated. Why? he said. You do not disobey me. You don't have to, said Rincewind hurriedly. It's only a thing. I do not see why I should hurt him, said Coyne. He looks so harmless, like an angry rabbit. He defies us. Not me, said Rincewind, thrusting the arm with the sock behind his back and trying to ignore the bit about the rabbit. Why should I do everything you tell me? said Coyne to the staff. I always do everything you tell me, and it doesn't help people at all. People must fear you. Have I taught you nothing? But he looks so funny. He's got a sock, said Coyne. He screamed and his arm jerked oddly. Rincewind's hair stood on end. You will do as you are commanded. I won't. You know what happens to boys who are bad? There was a crackle and a smell of scorched flesh. Coyne dropped to his knees. Here, yeah, hang on a minute, Rincewind began. Coyne opened his eyes. They were gold still, but flecked with brown. Rincewind swung his sock around in a wide humming arc that connected with the staff halfway along its length. There was a brief explosion of brick dust and burnt wool, and the staff spun out of the boy's hand. Wizards scattered as it tumbled end over end across the floor. It reached the parapet, bounced upwards, and shot over the edge. But instead of falling, it steadied itself in the air, spun in its own length, and sped back again, trailing octarine sparks and making a noise like a buzzsaw. Rincewind pushed the stunned boy behind him, threw away the ravaged sock, and whipped his hat off, flailing wildly as the staff bored towards him. It caught him on the side of the head, delivering a shock that almost welded his teeth together and toppled him like a thin and ragged tree. The staff turned again in mid-air, glowing red-hot now, and swept back for another and quite definitely final run. Rincewind struggled up on his elbows and watched in horrified fascination as it swooped through the chilly air, which for some reason he didn't understand seemed to be full of snowflakes, and became tinged with purple, blotched with blue. Time slowed and ground to a halt like an underworld phonograph. Rincewind looked up at the tall black figure that had appeared a few feet away. It was, of course, death. 
He turned his glowing eye sockets towards Rincewind and said in a voice like the collapse of undersea chasms, Good afternoon. He turned away as if he had completed all necessary business for the time being, stared at the horizon for a while and started to tap one foot idly. It sounded like a bag full of maracas. Uh, said Rincewind. Death appeared to remember him. I'm sorry, he said politely. I always wondered how it was going to be, said Rincewind. Death took an hourglass out from the mysterious folds of his ebon robes and peered at it. Did you? he said vaguely. I suppose I can't complain, said Rincewind virtuously. I've had a good life. Well, quite good, he hesitated. Well, not all that good, I suppose. Most people would call it pretty awful. He considered it further. I would, he added, half to himself. What are you talking about, man? Rincewind was nonplussed. Don't you make an appearance when a wizard is about to die? Of course, and I must say you people are giving me a busy day. How do you manage to be in so many places at the same time? Good organisation. Time returned. The staff, which had been hanging in the air a few feet away from Rincewind, started to scream forward again, and there was a metallic thud as Coin caught it one-handedly in mid-flight. The staff uttered a noise like a thousand fingernails dragging across glass. It thrashed wildly up and down, flailing at the arm that held it, and bloomed into an evil green flame along its entire length. So, at the last you fail me! Coin groaned but held on as the metal under his fingertips went red, then white. He thrust the arm out in front of him, and the force streaming from the staff roared past him and drew sparks from his hair and whipped his robe up into weird and unpleasant shapes. He screamed and whirled the staff around and smashed it on the parapet, leaving a long, bubbling line in the stone. Then he threw it away. It clattered against the stones and rolled to a halt, wizards scattering out of its path. Coin sagged to his knees, shaking. "'I don't like killing people,' he said. "'I'm sure it can't be right.' Hold on to that thought, said Rincewind fervently. What happens to people after they're dead, said Coyne. Rincewind glanced up at death. I think this one's for you, he said. He cannot see or hear me, said death, until he wants to. There was a little clinking noise. The staff was rolling back towards Coyne, who looked down at it in horror. Pick me up. You don't have to, said Rincewind again. You cannot resist me. You cannot defeat yourself, said the staff. Coin reached out very slowly and picked it up. Rincewind glanced at his sock. It was a stub of burnt wool, its brief career as a weapon of war having sent it beyond the help of any darning needle. Now kill him. Rincewind held his breath. The watching wizards held their breath. Even Death, who had nothing to hold but his scythe, held it tensely. No, said Coyne. You know what happens to boys who are bad? Rincewind saw the sorcerer's face go pale. The staff's voice changed. Now it wheedled. Without me, who would there be to tell you what to do? That is true, said Coyne slowly. See what you have achieved. Coyne stared slowly round the frightened faces. I am seeing, he said. I taught you everything I know. I'm thinking, said Coyne, that you do not know enough. Ingrate! Who gave you your destiny? You did, said the boy. He raised his head. I realised that I was wrong, he added quietly. Good! I did not throw you far enough! Coyne got to his feet in one movement and swung the staff over his head. He stood still as a statue, his hand lost in a ball of light that was the colour of molten copper. It turned green, ascended through the shades of blue, hovered in the violet, and then seared into pure octarine. Rincewind shaded his eyes against the glare and saw Coyne's hand still whole, still gripping tight, with beads of molten metal glittering between his fingers. He slithered away and bumped into Harkardly. The old wizard was standing like a statue with his mouth open. What'll happen? said Rincewind. He'll never beat it, said Harkardly hoarsely. It's his. It's as strong as him. He's got the power, but it knows how to channel it. 
You mean they'll cancel each other out? Hopefully. The battle was hidden in its own infernal glow. Then the floor began to tremble. They're drawing on everything magical, said Harkardly. We'd better leave the tower. Why? I imagine it will vanish soon enough. And indeed the white flagstones around the glow looked as though they were unravelling and disappearing into it. Rincewind hesitated. Aren't we going to help him, he said. Harkardly stared at him, and then at the iridescent tableau. His mouth opened and shut once or twice. I'm sorry, he said. Yes, but just a bit of help on his side. You've seen what the thing is like. I'm sorry. He helped you. Rincewind turned on the other wizards who were scurrying away. All of you. He gave you what you wanted, didn't he? We may never forgive him, said Harkardly. Rincewind groaned. What will be left when it's all over, he said. What will be left? Harkardly looked down. I'm sorry, he repeated. The octarine light had grown brighter and was beginning to turn black around the edge. It wasn't the black that is merely the opposite of light, though. It was the grainy, shifting blackness that glows beyond the glare and has no business in any decent reality, and it buzzed. Rincewind did a little dance of uncertainty as his feet, legs, instincts and incredibly well-developed sense of self-preservation overloaded his nervous system to the point where, just as it was on the point of fusing, his conscience finally got its way. He leapt into the fire and reached the staff. The wizards fled, several of them levitated down from the tower. They were a lot more perspicacious than those that used the stairs because about thirty seconds later the tower vanished. The snow continued to fall around a column of blackness which buzzed and the surviving wizards who dared to look back saw, tumbling slowly down the sky, a small object trailing flames behind it. It crashed into the cobbles, where it smouldered for a bit before the thickening snow put it out. Pretty soon it became just a small mound. A little while later a squat figure swung itself around the courtyard on its knuckles, scrabbled in the snow, and hauled the thing out. It was, or rather it had been, a hat. Life had not been kind to it, a large part of the wide brim had been burned off, the point was entirely gone and the tarnished silver letters were almost unreadable. Some of them had been torn off in any case. Those that were left spelled out W-I-Z-D. The librarian turned around slowly. He was entirely alone, except for the towering column of burning blackness and the steadily falling flakes. The ravaged campus was empty. There were a few other pointy hats that had been trampled by terrified feet and no other sign that people had been there. All the wizards were wazards. What's that? Wasn't there... Pestilence groped for his glass. Something... What's that? We ought to be... There's something we ought to be doing, said Famine. It's right. Got an appointment. The pestilence gazed reflectively into his drink. Uh, thingy. They stared gloomily at the bar counter. The innkeeper had long ago fled. There were several bottles still unopened. Okra, said Famine eventually. That was it. Now. The, um, the apos... The, the, the apostrophe, said War vaguely. They shook their heads. There was a lengthy pause. What does apocrustic mean, said Pestilence, gazing intently into some inner world? Astringent, said War, I think. It's not that, then. Shouldn't think so, said Famine glumly. There was another long, embarrassed silence. Better have another drink, said War, pulling himself together. That's right. About fifty miles away and several thousand feet up, Canina at last managed to control her stolen horse and brought it to a gentle trot on the empty air, displaying some of the most determined nonchalance the disc had ever seen. Snow, she said. Clouds were roaring soundlessly from the direction of the hub. They were fat and heavy and shouldn't be moving so fast. Blizzards trailed beneath them, covering the landscape like a sheet. It didn't look like the kind of snow that whispers down gently in the pit of the night and in the morning turns the landscape into a glittering wonderland of uncommon and ethereal beauty. It looked like the kind of snow that intends to make the world as bloody cold as possible. Bit late in the year, said Nigel. He glanced downwards and then immediately closed his eyes. 
Creosote watched in delighted astonishment. Is that how it happens? he said. I've only heard about it in stories. I thought it sprouted out of the ground somehow, a bit like mushrooms, I thought. Those clouds aren't right, said Canina. Do you mind if we go down now? said Nigel, weakly. Somehow it didn't look so bad when we were moving. Canina ignored this. Try the lamp, she commanded. I want to know about this. Nigel fumbled in his pack and produced the lamp. The voice of the genie sounded rather tinny and far off and said, If you would care to relax a little, trying to connect you. There then followed some tinkly little music, the kind that perhaps a Swiss chalet would make if you could play it, before a trapdoor outlined itself in the air and the genie himself appeared. He looked around him and then at them. Oh, wow, he said. Something's happening to the weather, said Canina. Why? You mean you don't know, said the genie. We're asking you, aren't we? Well, I'm no judge, but it rather looks like the apocalypse, yeah? What? The genie shrugged. The gods have vanished, OK, he said. And according to, you know, legend, that means... The ice giants, said Nigel in a horrified whisper. Speak up, said Creosote. The ice giants, Nigel repeated loudly with a trace of irritation. The gods keep them in prison, see, at the hub. But at the end of the world, they'll break free at last and ride out on their dreadful glaciers and regain their ancient domination, crushing out the flames of civilization until the world lies naked and frozen under the terrible cold stars, until time itself freezes over, or something like that, apparently. But it isn't time for the apocalypse, said Canina desperately. I mean, a dreadful ruler has to arise. There must be a terrible war. The four dreadful horsemen have to ride, and then the dungeon dimensions will break into the world. She stopped, her face nearly as white as the snow. Being buried under a thousand-foot ice sheet sounds awfully like it anyway, said the genie. He reached forward and snatched his lamp out of Nigel's hands. Mucho apologies, he said. But it's time to liquidise my assets in this reality. See you around, or something. He vanished up to the waist, and then with a faint last cry of, Shame about lunch, disappeared entirely. The three riders peered through the veils of driving snow towards the hub. It may be my imagination, said Creosote, but can either of you hear a sort of creaking and groaning? Shut up, said Canina distractedly. Creosote leaned over and patted her head. Cheer up, he said. It's not the end of the world. He thought about this statement for a bit and then added, Sorry, just a figure of speech. What are we going to do? she wailed. Nigel drew himself up. I think, he said, that we should go and explain. They turned towards him with the kind of expression normally reserved for messiahs or extreme idiots. Yes, he said with a shade more confidence. We should explain. Explain to the ice giants, said Canina. Yes. Sorry, said Canina. Have I got this right? You think we should go and find the terrifying ice giants and sort of tell them that there are a lot of warm people out here who would rather they didn't sweep across the world crushing everyone under mountains of ice? And could they sort of reconsider things? Is that what you think we should do? Yes, that's right. You've got it exactly. Conina and Creosote exchanged glances. Nigel remained sitting proudly in the saddle, a faint smile on his face. Is your geese giving you trouble? said the seraph. Geers, said Nigel calmly. It's not giving me trouble, it's just that I must do something brave before I die. That's it, though, said Creosote. That's the whole rather sad point. You'll do something brave and then you'll die. What alternative have we got? said Nigel. They considered this. I don't think I'm much good at explaining, said Canina in a small voice. I am, said Nigel firmly. I'm always having to explain. The scattered particles of what had been Rincewind's mind pulled themselves together and drifted up through the layers of dark unconsciousness like a three-day corpse rising to the surface. It probed its most recent memories in much the same way that one might scratch a fresh scab. He could recall something about a staff and a pain so intense that it appeared to insert a chisel between every cell in his body and hammer on it repeatedly. 
He remembered the staff fleeing, dragging him after it, and then there had been that dreadful bit where death had appeared and reached past him, and the staff had twisted and become suddenly alive, and death had said, Ipslaw the Red, I have you now. And now there was this. By the feel of it, Rincewind was lying on sand. It was very cold. He took the risk of seeing something horrible and opened his eyes. The first thing he saw was his left arm, and surprisingly, his hand. It was its normal grubby self. He had expected to see a stump. It seemed to be night-time. The beach, or whatever it was, stretched on towards a line of distant low mountains under a night sky frosted with a million white stars. A little closer to him, there was a rough line in the silvery sand. He lifted his head slightly and saw the scatter of molten droplets. They were octoron, a metal so intrinsically magical that no forge on the disk could even warm it up. Oh, he said. We won, then. He flopped down again. After a while, his right hand came up automatically and patted the top of his head. Then it patted the sides of his head. Then it began to grope with increasing urgency in the sand around him. Eventually, it must have communicated its concern to the rest of Rincewind, because he pulled himself upright and said, Oh, bugger. There seemed to be no hat anywhere, but he could see a small white shape lying very still in the sand a little way away, and further off, a column of daylight. It hummed and swayed in the air, a three-dimensional hole into somewhere else. Occasional flurries of snow blew out of it. He could see skewed images in the light that might be buildings or landscapes warped by the weird curvature, but he couldn't see them very clearly because of the tall brooding shadows that surrounded it. The human mind is an astonishing thing. It can operate on several layers at once. And in fact, while Rincewind had been wasting his intellect in groaning and looking for his hat, an inner part of his brain had been observing, assessing, analysing and comparing. Now it crept up to his cerebellum, tapped it on the shoulder, thrust a message into its hand and ran for it. The message ran something like this. I hope I find me well. The last trial of magic has been too much for the tortured fabric of reality. It has opened a hole. I am in the dungeon dimensions, and the things in front of me are the things. It has been nice knowing me. The particular thing nearest Windswind was at least twenty feet high. It looked like a dead horse that had been dug up after three months and then introduced to a range of new experiences, at least one of which had included an octopus. It hadn't noticed Windswind. It was too busy concentrating on the light. Rincewind crawled back to the still body of coin and nudged it gently. Are you alive? he said. If you're not, I'd prefer it if you didn't answer. Coin rolled over and stared up at him with puzzled eyes. After a while he said, I remember... Best not to, said Rincewind. The boy's hand groped vaguely in the sand beside him. It isn't here any more, said Rincewind quietly. The hand stopped its searching. Rincewind helped Coin to sit up. He looked blankly at the cold silver sand, then at the sky, then at the distant things, and then at Rincewind. I don't know what to do, he said. No harm in that. I've never known what to do, said Rincewind, with hollow cheerfulness. Been completely at a loss my whole life, he hesitated. Oh, I think it's called being human or something. But I've always known what to do. Rincewind opened his mouth to say that he'd seen some of it, but changed his mind. Instead, he said, Chin up, look on the bright side, it could be worse. Coyne took another look around. In what respect, exactly? he said, his voice a shade more normal. Um, what is this place? It's a sort of other dimension. The magic broke through and we went with it, I think. And those things? They regarded the things. I think they're, um, things. They're trying to get back through the hole, said Rincewind. It isn't easy. Energy levels or something. I remember we had a lecture on them once. Um, Coyne nodded and reached out a thin, pale hand towards Rincewind's forehead. Do you mind? he began. Rincewind shuddered at the touch. Mind what? he said. If I have a look in your head. Rrr! It's rather a mess in here. No wonder you can't find things. Rrr! You ought to have a clear-out. Ah! Rincewind felt the presence retreat. Coyne frowned. We can't let them get through, he announced. 
They have horrible powers. They're trying to will the hole bigger. They can do it. They've been waiting to break into our world for... He frowned. Eons. Eons, said Rincewind. Coined opened his other hand, which had been tightly clenched, and showed Rincewind the small grey pearl. You know what this is, he said. No, what is it? I can't remember, but we should put it back. OK, just use sorcery. Blow them to bits and let's go home. No, they live on magic. It'd only make them worse. I can't use magic. Are you sure? said Rincewind. I'm afraid your memory was very clear on the subject. Then what shall we do? I don't know. Rincewind thought about this and then, with an air of finality, started to take off his last sock. No half-bricks, he said, to no one in particular. Have to use sand. You are going to attack them with a sock full of sand? No, I'm going to run away from them. The sock full of sand is for when they follow. People were returning to Al-Khali, where the ruined tower was a smoking heap of stones. A few brave souls turned their attention to the wreckage, on the basis that there might be survivors who could be rescued or looted, or both. And among the rubble, the following conversation might have been heard. There's something moving under here. Under what? By the two beards of Mtal you are mishearing. It must wear a ton. Over here, brothers! And then sounds of much heaving would have been heard. And then... It's a box. It could be treasure, do you think? It's growing legs by the seven moons of Nazarim. Five moons. Where did it go? Where did it go? Never mind about that. It's not important. Let's get this straight. According to the legend, it was five moons. In Clatch, they take their mythology seriously. It's only real life they don't believe. The three horse persons sensed the change as they descended through the heavy snow clouds at the hub end of the Stowe Plain. There was a sharp scent in the air. Can't you smell it? said Nigel. I remember it when I was a boy, when you could lay in bed on that first morning in winter and you could sort of taste it in the air and... The clouds parted below them, and there, filling the high plains country from end to end, were the herds of the ice giants. They stretched for miles in every direction, and the thunder of their stampede filled the air. The bull glaciers were in the lead, bellowing their vast creaky calls, and throwing up great sheets of earth as they ploughed relentlessly forward. Behind them pressed the great mass of cows and their calves, skimming over land already ground down to the bedrock by the leaders. They bore as much resemblance to the familiar glaciers the world thought it knew as a lion dozing in the shade bears to 300 pounds of wickedly coordinated muscle bounding towards you with its mouth open. And, and when you went to the window, Nigel's mouth, lacking any further input from his brain, ran down. Moving, jostling ice packed the plain, roaring forward under a great cloud of clammy steam. The ground shook as the leaders passed below, and it was obvious to the onlookers that whoever was going to stop this would need more than a couple of pounds of rock salt and a shovel. Go on, then, said Canina. Explain. I think you'd better shout. Nigel looked distractedly at the herd. I think I can see some figures, said Creosote helpfully. Look! On top of the leading... things. Nigel peered through the snow. There were indeed beings moving around the backs of the glaciers. They were human or humanoid, or at least humanish. They didn't look very big. That turned out to be because the glaciers themselves were very big and Nigel wasn't very good at perspective. As the horses flew lower over the leading glacier, a huge bull heavily crevassed and scarred by moraine, it became apparent that one reason why the ice giants were known as the ice giants was because they were, well, giants. The other was that they were made of ice. A figure the size of a large house was crouched at the crest of the bull, urging it to greater efforts by means of a spike on a long pole. It was craggy. In fact, it was more nearly faceted, and glinted green and blue in the light. There was a thin band of silver in its snowy locks, and its eyes were tiny and black and deep-set like lumps of coal. Although this was the only way in which they resembled the idols built in response to ancient and unacknowledged memories by children in snowy weather, it was extremely unlikely that this ice giant would be a small mound of grubby ice with a carrot in it by the morning. There was a splintering crash ahead as the leading glaciers smacked into a forest. Birds rattled up in panic. Snow and splinters rained down around Nigel as he galloped on the air alongside the giant. He cleared his throat. Um, he said, excuse me. Ahead of the boiling surf of earth, snow and smashed timber, a herd of caribou was running in blind panic, their rear hooves a few feet from the tumbling mess. Nigel tried again. I say, he 
he shouted. The giant's head turned towards him. What you want, it said. Go away, hot person. Uh, sorry, but is this really necessary? The giant looked at him in frozen astonishment. It turned around slowly and regarded the rest of the herd, which seemed to stretch all the way to the hub. It looked at Nigel again. Yes, it said. I think so. Otherwise, why we do it? Only there's a lot of people out there who would prefer you not to, you see, said Nigel desperately. A rock spire loomed briefly ahead of the glacier, rocked for a second and then vanished. He added, Also, uh, children, and uh, small furry animals. They will suffer in the course of progress. Now is the time we've reclaimed the world. Rumbled the giant. Whole world of ice, according to inevitability of history and triumph of thermodynamics. Yes, but you don't have to, said Nigel. We want to, said the giant. The gods are gone. We throw off the shackles of outmoded superstition. Freezing the old world solid doesn't sound very progressive to me, said Nigel. We like it. Yes, yes, said Nigel, in the maniacally glazed tones of one who is trying to see all sides of the issue and is certain that a solution will be found if people of goodwill will only sit around a table and discuss things rationally like sensible human beings. But... Is this the right time? Uh, is the world ready for the triumph of ice? It bloody well better be, said the giant, and swung his glacier prod at Nigel. It missed the horse, but caught him full in the chest, lifting him clean out of the saddle and flicking him onto the glacier itself. He spun, spread-eagled down its freezing flanks, was carried some way by the boil of debris, and rolled into the slush of ice and mud between the speeding walls. He staggered to his feet and peered hopelessly into the freezing fog. Another glacier bore down directly on him. So did Canina. She leaned over as her horse swept down out of the fog, caught Nigel by his leather barbarian harness, and swung him up in front of her. As they rose again, he wheezed, Cold-hearted bastard! I really thought I was getting somewhere for a moment there. You just can't talk to some people. The herd breasted another hill, scraping off quite a lot of it, and the Stowe Plain, studded with cities, lay helpless before it. Rincewind sidled towards the nearest thing, holding coin with one hand and swinging the loaded sock in the other. "'No magic, right?' he said. "'Yes,' said the boy. "'Whatever happens, you mustn't use magic.' "'That's it, not here. They haven't got much power here if you don't use magic. Once they break through, though—' His voice trailed away. "'Pretty awful,' Rincewind nodded. "'Terrible,' said Coin. Rincewind sighed. He wished he still had his hat. He'd just have to do without it. All right, he said. When I shout, you make a run for the light. Do you understand? No looking back or anything, no matter what happens. No matter what, said Coyne uncertainly. No matter what. Rincewind gave a brave little smile. Especially no matter what you hear. He was vaguely cheered to see Coyne's mouth become an O of terror. And then, he continued, when you get back to the other side, what shall I do? Rincewind hesitated. I don't know, he said. Anything you can. As much magic as you like. Anything. Just stop them. And, um... Yes? Rincewind gazed up at the thing which was still staring into the light. If it... You know, if anyone gets out of this, you know, and everything is all right after all, sort of thing, I'd like you to sort of tell people I sort of stayed here. Perhaps they could sort of write it down somewhere. I mean, I wouldn't want a statue or anything, he added virtuously. After a while, he added... I think you ought to blow your nose. Coyne did so on the hem of his robe, then shook Rincewind's hand solemnly. If ever you... He began. Uh, that is, you're the first... It's been a great... You see, I, I never really... His voice trailed off, and then he said, I just wanted you to know that. There was something else I was trying to say, said Rincewind, letting go of the hand. He looked blank for a moment and then added, Oh, yes, it's vital to remember who you really are. It's very important. It isn't a good idea to rely on other people or things to do it for you, you see. They always get it wrong. I'll try and remember, said Coyne. It's very important, Rincewind repeated almost to himself. And now I think you'd better run. Rincewind crept closer to the thing. This particular one had chicken legs, but most of the rest of it was mercifully hidden in what looked like folded wings. It was, he thought, time for a last few words. What he said now was likely to be very important. Perhaps they would be words that would be remembered and handed down and maybe even carved deeply in slabs of granite. Words without too many curly letters in, therefore. 
I really wish I wasn't here, he muttered. He hefted the sock, whirled it once or twice, and smashed the thing on what he hoped was its kneecap. It gave a shrill buzz, spun wildly with its wings creaking open, lunged vaguely at Rincewind with its vulture head, and got another sock full of sand on the upswing. Rincewind looked around desperately as the thing staggered back and saw Coin still standing where he had left him. To his horror, he saw the boy begin to walk towards him, hand raised instinctively to fire the magic which here would doom them both. "'Run away, you idiot!' he screamed as the thing began to gather itself for a counter-attack. From out of nowhere he found the words, "'You know what happens to boys who are bad!' Coin went pale, turned, and ran towards the light. He moved as though through treacle, fighting against the entropy slope. The distorted image of the world turned inside out, hovered a few feet away, then inches, wavering uncertainly. A tentacle curled around his leg, tumbling him forward. He flung his hands out as he fell, and one of them touched snow. It was immediately grabbed by something else that felt like a warm, soft leather glove, but under the gentle touch was a grip as tough as tempered steel, and it tugged him forward, also dragging whatever it was that had caught him. Light and grainy dark flickered around him, and suddenly he was sliding over cobbles slicked with ice. The librarian let go his hold and stood over coin with a length of heavy wooden beam in his hand. For a moment the ape reared against the darkness, the shoulder, elbow and wrist of his right arm unfolding in a poem of applied leverage, and in a movement as unstoppable as the dawn of intelligence, brought it down very heavily. There was a squashy noise and an offended screech, and the burning pressure on coin's leg vanished. The dark column wavered. There were squeals and thumps coming from it, distorted by distance. Coyne struggled to his feet and started to run back into the dark, but this time the librarian's arm blocked his path. "'We can't just leave him in there!' the ape shrugged. There was another crackle from the dark, and then a moment of almost complete silence. But only almost complete. Both of them thought they heard, a long way off but very distinct, the sound of running feet fading into the distance. They found an echo in the outside world. The ape glanced around and then pushed Coin hurriedly to one side as something squat and battered and with hundreds of little legs barrelled across the stricken courtyard and without so much as pausing in its stride leapt into the disappearing darkness which flickered for one last time and vanished. There was a sudden flurry of snow across the air where it had been. Coin wrenched free of the librarian's grip and ran into the circle which was already turning white. His feet scuffed up a sprinkle of fine sand. He didn't come out, he said. Ook, said the librarian, in a philosophic manner. I thought he'd come out, you know, just at the last minute. Ook. Coyne looked closely at the cobbles, as if by mere concentration he could change what he saw. Is he dead? Ook, observed the librarian, contriving to imply that Rincewind was in a region where even things like time and space were a bit iffy and it was probably not very useful to speculate as to his exact state at this point in time, if indeed he was at any point in time at all, and that, all in all, he might even turn up tomorrow, or, for that matter, yesterday, and finally, that if there was any chance at all of surviving, then Rincewind almost certainly would. Oh, said Coyne. He watched the librarian shuffle around and head back for the Tower of Art, and a desperate loneliness overcame him. I say, he yelled, Ook! What should I do now? Ook? Coin waved vaguely at the desolation. You know, perhaps I could do something about all this, he said in a voice tilting on the edge of terror. Do you think that would be a good idea? I mean, I could help people. I'm sure you'd like to be human again, wouldn't you? The librarian's everlasting smile hoisted itself a little further up his face, just enough to reveal his teeth. OK, perhaps not, said Coin hurriedly. But there's other things I could do, isn't there? The librarian gazed at him for some time, then dropped his eye to the boy's hand. Coin gave a guilty start and opened his fingers. The ape caught the little silver ball neatly before it hit the ground and held it up to one eye. He sniffed it, shook it gently, and listened to it for a while. Then he wound up his arm and flung it away as hard as possible. What? Coin began and landed full length in the snow when the librarian pushed him over and dived on top of him. The ball curled over the top of its arc and tumbled down, its perfect path interrupted suddenly by the ground. There was a sound like a harp string breaking, a brief babble of incomprehensible voices, a rush of hot wind, and the gods of the disc were free.
They were very angry. There is nothing we can do here, is there? said Creosote. No, said Canina. The ice is going to win, isn't it? said Creosote. Yes, said Canina. No, said Nigel. He was trembling with rage, or possibly with cold, and was nearly as pale as the glaciers that rumbled past below them. Canina sighed. Well, just how do you think, she began. Take me down somewhere a few minutes ahead of them, said Nigel. I really don't see how that would help. I wasn't asking your opinion, said Nigel quietly. Just do it. Put me down a little way ahead of them, so I've got a while to get sorted out. Get what sorted out? Nigel didn't answer. I said, said Canina, get what? Shut up! I don't see what... Look, said Nigel, with the patience that lies just short of axe murdering. The ice is going to cover the whole world, right? Everyone's going to die, OK? Except us for a little while, I suppose, until these horses want their, uh, their oats or the lavatory or whatever, which isn't much use to us, except maybe Creosote will just about have time to write a sonnet or something about how cold it is all of a sudden, and the whole of human history is about to be scraped up, and in these circumstances I would like very much to make it completely clear that I am not about to be argued with. Is that absolutely understood? He paused for breath. "'trembling like a harp-string. "'Canina hesitated. "'Her mouth opened and shut a few times "'as though she was considering arguing, "'and then she thought better of it. "'They found a small clearing in a pine forest "'a mile or two ahead of the herd, "'although the sound of it was clearly audible "'and there was a line of steam above the trees "'and the ground was dancing like a drum-top. "'Nigel strolled to the middle of the clearing "'and made a few practice swings with his sword. "'The others watched him thoughtfully. "'If you don't mind,' whispered Creosote to Canina, I'll be off. It's at times like this that sobriety loses its attractions, and I'm sure the end of the world will look a lot better through the bottom of a glass, if it's all the same to you. You believe in paradise, oh peach-cheeked blossom? Not as such, no. Oh, said Creosote, well, in that case, we probably won't be seeing each other again, he sighed. What a waste. All this just because of a gears. Hmm... Of course, if by some unthinkable chance... Goodbye, said Canina. Creosote nodded miserably, wheeled his horse and disappeared over the treetops. Snow was shaking down from the branches around the clearing. The thunder of the approaching glaciers filled the air. Nigel started when she tapped him on the shoulder and dropped his sword. What are you doing here? He snapped, fumbling desperately in the snow. Look, I'm not prying or anything, said Canina meekly, but what exactly do you have in mind? She could see a rolling heap of bulldozed snow and soil bearing down on them through the forest, the mind-numbing sound of the leading glaciers now overlaid with the rhythmic snapping of tree trunks. And advancing implacably above the tree line, so high that the eye mistook them at first for sky, the blue-green prows. Nothing, said Nigel, nothing at all. We're just going to resist them, but that's all there is to it. That's what we're here for. But it won't make any difference, she said. It will to me. If we're going to die anyway, I'd rather die like this, heroically. Is it heroic to die like this? said Canina. I think it is, he said, and when it comes to dying, there's only one opinion that matters. Oh. A couple of deer blundered into the clearing, ignored the humans in their blind panic and rocketed away. You don't have to stay, said Nigel. I've got this gears, you see. Canina looked at the back of her hands. I think I should, she said and added, you know, I thought maybe, you know, if we could just get to know one another better. Mr and Mrs Hairbutt is what you had in mind, he said bluntly. Her eyes widened. Well, she began. Which one did you intend to be, he said. The leading glacier smashed into the clearing just behind its bow wave, its top lost in a cloud of its own creation. At exactly the same time, the trees opposite it bent low as a hot wind blew from the rim. It was loaded with voices, petulant, bickering voices, and tore into the clouds like a hot iron into water. Canina and Nigel threw themselves down into the snow, which turned to warm slush under them. Something like a thunderstorm crashed overhead, filled with shouting and what they at first thought were screams, although, thinking about them later, they seemed more like very angry arguments. It went on for a long time and then began to fade in the direction of the hub. Warm water flooded down the front of Nigel's vest. 
He lifted himself cautiously and then nudged Kanina. Together they scrambled through the slush and mud to the top of the slope, climbed through a logjam of smashed timber and boulders and stared at the scene. The glaciers were retreating under a cloud stuffed with lightning. Behind them, the landscape was a network of lakes and pools. Did we do that? said Kanina. It would be nice to think so, wouldn't it? said Nigel. Yes, but did we? she began. Probably not. Who knows? Let's just find a horse, he said. The apogee, said War, or something, I'm pretty sure. They had staggered out of the inn and were sitting on a bench in the afternoon sunshine. Even War had been persuaded to take off some of his armour. Dunno, ho said Famine. Don't think so. Pestilence shut his crusted eyes and leaned back against the warm stones. I think, he said, it was something about the end of the world. War sat and thoughtfully scratched his chin. He hiccuped. What, the whole world? he said. I reckon. War gave this some further consideration. I reckon we're well out of it then, he said. People were returning to Ark Moorpork, which was no longer a city of empty marble, but was once again its old self, sprawling as randomly and colourfully as a pool of vomit outside the all-night takeaway of history. And the university had been rebuilt, or had rebuilt itself, or in some strange way had never been unbuilt. Every strand of ivy, every rotting casement, was back in place. The sorcerer had offered to replace everything as good as new, all wood sparkling, all stone unstained, but the librarian had been very firm on the subject. He wanted everything replaced as good as old. The wizards came creeping back with the dawn, in ones or twos, scuttling for their old rooms, trying to avoid one another's gaze, trying to remember a recent past that was already becoming unreal and dreamlike. Kanina and Nigel arrived around breakfast time and, out of kindness, found a livery stable for War's horse which wisely decided not to fly again, was never claimed, and lived out the rest of its days as the carriage horse of an elderly lady. What War did about this is unrecorded. It is pretty certain that he got another one. It was Kanina who insisted that they look for Rincewind at the university, and who therefore first saw the books. They were flying out of the Tower of Art, spiralling around the university buildings, and swooping through the door of the reincarnated library. One or two of the more impudent grimoires were chasing sparrows or hovering hawk-like over the quad. The librarian was leaning against the doorway, watching his charges with a benevolent eye. He waggled his eyebrows at Kanina, the nearest he ever got to a conventional greeting. Is Rincewind here? she said. Ook. Sorry? The ape didn't answer, but took them both by the hand, and walking between them like a sack between two poles, led them across the cobbles to the tower. There were a few candles alight inside, and they saw coins seated on a stool. The librarian bowed them into his presence like an ancient retainer in the oldest family of all, and withdrew. Coin nodded at them. He knows when people don't understand him, he said. Remarkable, isn't he? Who are you? said Kanina. Coin, said Coin. Are you a student here? I'm learning quite a lot, I think. Nigel was wandering around the walls, giving them the occasional prod. There had to be some good reason why they didn't fall down, but if there was, it didn't lie in the realms of civil engineering. Are you looking for Rincewind? said Coyne. Kanina frowned. How did you guess that? He told me some people would come looking for him. Kanina relaxed. Sorry, she said. We've had a bit of a trying time. I thought perhaps it was magic or something. He's all right, isn't he? I mean, what's been happening? Did he fight the sorcerer? Oh, yes, and he won. It was very interesting. I saw it all. But then he had to go, said Coyne, as though reciting. What? Just like that? said Nigel. Yes. I don't believe it, said Kanina. She was beginning to crouch, her knuckles whitening. It is true, said Coyne. Everything I say is true. It has to be. I want to... Kanina began, and Coyne stood up, extended a hand, and said, Stop. She froze. Nigel stiffened in mid-frown. You will leave, said Coyne, in a pleasant, level voice, and you will ask no more questions. You will be totally satisfied. You will have all your answers. You will live happily ever after. You will forget hearing these words. You will go now. 
They turned slowly and woodenly, like puppets, and trooped to the door. The librarian opened it for them, ushered them through, and shut it behind them. Then he stared at Coyne, who sagged back onto the stool. "'All right, all right,' said the boy, "'but it was only a little magic. I had to. You said yourself people had to forget.' "'Ooh! I can't help it. It's too easy to change things.' He clutched his head. "'I've only got to think of something.' I can't stay. Everything I touch goes wrong. It's like trying to sleep on a heap of eggs. This world is too thin. Please tell me what to do. The librarian spun around on his bottom a few times, a sure sign of deep thought. Exactly what he said is not recorded, but Coyne smiled, nodded, shook the librarian's hand, and opened his own hands and drew them up and around him and stepped into another world. It had a lake in and some distant mountains, and a few pheasants watching him suspiciously from under the trees. It was the magic all sorcerers learned, eventually. Sorcerers never become part of the world, they merely wear it for a while. He looked back halfway across the turf, and waved at the librarian. The ape gave him an encouraging nod. And then the bubble shrank inside itself, and the last sorcerer vanished from this world, and into a world of his own. Although it has nothing much to do with the story, it is an interesting fact that about 500 miles away, a small flock, or rather in this case a herd, of birds were picking their way cautiously through the trees. They had heads like flamingos, bodies like a turkey, and legs like a sumo wrestler. They walked in a jerky, bobbing fashion, as though their heads were attached to their feet by elastic bands. They belonged to a species unique even among disc fauna, in that their prime means of defence was to cause a predator to laugh so much that they could run away before it recovered. Rincewind would have been vaguely satisfied to know that they were gears. Custom was slow in the mended drum. The troll chained to the doorpost sat in the shade and reflectively picked someone out of his teeth. Creosote was singing softly to himself. He had discovered beer and wasn't having to pay for it, because the coinage of compliments, rarely employed by the swains of Ark, was having an astonishing effect on the landlord's daughter. She was a large, good-natured girl with a figure that was the colour and, not to put too fine a point on it, the same shape as unbaked bread. She was intrigued. No one had ever referred to her breasts as jewelled melons before. Absolutely, said the seraph, sliding peacefully off his bench. No doubt about it. Either the big yellow sort, or the small green ones with huge warty veins, he told himself, virtuously. And what was it about my hair? she said encouragingly, hauling him back and refilling his glass. Oh, the seraph's brow wrinkled, like a goat of flocks that grazes on the slopes of Mount uh, what's the name and no mistake. And as for your ears, he added quickly, no pink-hued shells that grace the sea-kissed sands of... Exactly how like a flock of goats, she said. The seraph hesitated. He'd always considered it one of his best lines. Now it was meeting Ankh Morpork's famous literal-mindedness head-on for the first time. Strangely enough, he felt rather impressed. I mean, in size, shape, or smell, she went on. I think, said the seraph, that perhaps the phrase I had in mind was exactly not like a flog of gits. Huh? The girl pulled the flagon toward her. And I think perhaps... I would like another drink, he said, indistinctly. And then, and then, he looked sideways at the girl and took the plunge. Are you much of a raconteur? What? He licked his suddenly dry lips. I mean, do you know many stories, he croaked. Oh, yes, lots. Lots, whispered Creosote. Most of his concubines only knew the same old one or two. Hundreds! Why, do you want to hear one? What? Now? If you like, it's not very busy in here. Perhaps I did die, Creosote thought. Perhaps this is paradise. He took her hand. You know, he said, it's ages since I've had a good narrative. But I wouldn't want you to do anything you don't want to do. She patted his arm. What a nice old gentleman, she thought, compared to some we get in here. There's one my granny used to tell me. 
I know it backwards, she said. Creosote sipped his beer and watched the wall in a warm glow. Hundreds, he thought, and she knows some of them. Backwards. She cleared her throat and said in a sing-song voice that made Creosote's pulse fuse, There was a man, and he had eight sons. The patrician sat by his window, writing. His mind was full of fluff as far as the last week or two was concerned, and he didn't like that much. A servant had lit a lamp to dispel the twilight, and a few early evening moths were orbiting it. The patrician watched them carefully. For some reason he felt very uneasy in the presence of glass, but that, as he stared fixedly at the insects, wasn't what bothered him most. What bothered him was that he was fighting a terrible urge to catch them with his tongue. And waffles lay on his back at his master's feet and barked in his dreams. Lights were going on all over the city, but the last few strands of sunset illuminated the gargoyles as they helped one another up the long climb to the roof. The librarian watched them from the open door while giving himself a philosophic scratch. Then he turned and shut out the night. It was warm in the library. It was always warm in the library, because the scatter of magic that produced the glow also gently cooked the air. The librarian looked at his charges approvingly, made his last rounds of the slumbering shelves, and then dragged his blanket underneath his desk, ate a goodnight banana, and fell asleep. Silence gradually reclaimed the library. Silence drifted around the remains of a hat, heavily battered and frayed and charred around the edges, that had been placed with some ceremony in a niche in the wall. No matter how far a wizard goes, he will always come back for his hat. Silence filled the university in the same way that air fills a hole. Night spread across the disc like plum jam, or possibly blackberry preserve. But there would be a morning. There would always be another morning. That is The End of Sorcery by Terry Pratchett, and it was read by Nigel Planer.